3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners and custodians of this land upon which we live and work. We pay respect to elders past and present and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be in our audience or listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement and that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? How have you two been, Sonara and Claudia? Very well. Me too. Um, just bit, just got a bit of a cold, um, but I should be fine. <laughs> That's we okay. We all can hear you clearly. Mm. Yeah, that's more important. I feel like even though um, we all feel so sick to our body, but as long as our voice is fine, we look fine, we sound fine. <laughs> so that's good. Yeah, it's getting to that time of the year again. The The weather's getting just a little fresher, a yeah. little darker, and uh, yeah, a few people mm-hmm. Yeah, I can, I've sick. seen, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, I've seen people start wearing winter coats, but um, I don't think it was actually that cold today. I thought it was going to be really cold, but it wasn't as bad as I thought it was. Mm, <laughs> That's yeah. good. Kind of not excited, though, because I'm, I'm not a really a winter person either. Yeah, well, got another week of March, so hopefully yeah, it holds out mm-hmm. <laughs> till mm. Easter. It's oh, hard yeah, when you're from like a tropical country, I guess, adjusting to this weather. Yeah, because I've... I've basically been in summer for like 365 days of the year every since the day I was born. So like, yeah, it's not not a good feeling. But um, I guess I've already kind of experienced it last year. So being here now, it's cause, I mean, I kind I kind of used to it. So that's a good thing. Mm. Yeah. How do you find it, Sonera? Um, I've grown up here for most of my life. Um, but I can't say I'm ever used to the Melbourne weather. So it's always surprisingly on. Uh, it's always unsurprisingly surprising. That's what I always say. Yeah, <laughs> very good way of putting it. Well, it's taken me about twenty-five years to adjust because I moved from Perth oh. many years ago, and Perth's much warmer than Melbourne. So, mm. yes. Well, speaking of current affairs, yes. um, what have we got this morning? I think I'm pretty excited about today's show. Um, mm-hmm. Sonara, you're starting us off with a, an interview of someone who I'm a big fan of. Yes, um, I, t- I talked to Dr. Simon Longstaff from the Ethics Centre and, um, you know, we talked about a lot of things since ethics is such a huge, uh, wide topic, but we talked about, you know, how ethical dilemmas have um, developed over time and, you know, just generally what the Ethics Centre has going on at the moment. So stay tuned for that. And then following that, we will be hearing from uh, two pro-trans activists, Amy Sargent and Edie Phillips. They spoke with Jacob Gamble uh, on Queering the Air on Sunday 
which was the day after the rally that took place on Saturday, Parliament's steps. Uh, as listeners uh, are most likely aware, there was a anti-trans rally that took place uh, and was also attended by some neo-Nazi uh, activists and things got a little bit heated and we're going to hear um, about uh, Amy's experience because Amy was actually at the event as well as some of the issues um, involving the relationship between uh, anti-trans activists and neo-Nazi far-right supremacists as well as the p- police response to the situation. So mm. that's uh, going to be coming up around 7.30. Yep. And then next up, I'll, I'll be speaking to Transparency Warrior and former independent senator Rex Patrick about the challenge to federal court regarding the delayed F- FOI, which stands for Freedom of Information, there was uh there were requests being meant to be reviewed by the Australian Information Commissioner, um, and looking at how the FOI works and its implications. And then to round off the show, we're dealing with lots of big issues today: freedom of information, yeah. ethics. Uh, we're going to be talking with uh, Professor Joseph Camilleri from La Trobe University. And Professor Camilleri is a big ideas person, a big thinker, who has established a forum called Conversation at the Crossroads. And I spoke to him about that uh, back in 2021 when he set that up and they had their launch. And it is a, a forum for ordinary citizens to come and discuss, vigorously discuss and debate current issues of our time. And today at lunchtime, they are having their first lunchtime uh, forum. And the topic of the day, a very important and timely one, voice, treaty and truth-telling, what, when and how. So he's going to come along and tell us what the big issues that will be unravelled there and invite listeners along to join. Mm. Interesting. Very political today. Exactly. <laughs> a lot of politics. Yeah. So, um, but I think it's very interesting to go into all this, especially for current affairs that we should know about for radio and for media. So, yeah. All right. So, let's hop in. Uh, Sonera, you're going to introduce your guest. Yep. Um, so, um, ethics plays a huge part in our lives as we are guided by our own moral principles and values to make decisions. But uh, how much can our own ethical decisions impact our future? So, recently I talked to Simon Longstaff from the Ethics Centre, which is an independent and non-for-profit organisation that works with individuals and corporations to involve ethics in their lives or the work that they do. Simon tells us more about some of the things that are taking place there and the ethical dilemmas over time. Let's take a listen. Hello, everyone. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. I'm Sonera, and right now I'm joined by Dr. Simon Longstaff, who is the founder of the Ethics Centre and adjunct professor of the Australian Graduate School of Management at the University of New South Wales. Thank you, Simon, for joining us today. How are you? I'm good, and thanks for having me this morning, Sonera, and also hello to your listeners. Just to get started right now, 
first of all, you are the founder of the, uh, you are the founder and executive director of the Ethics Center. But can you tell me how it came to be and how and why you wanted to have a space like that? In the 1980s, so a long time ago now, there was a period in Australia where the notorious business leaders, people like Alan Bond and Christopher Scase, were operating in a way which caused quite a bit of scandal, not just in Australia, but abroad. And the then chairman of the National Companies and Securities Commission felt that they alone were not to blame for this, but that it also involved lots of lawyers and accountants and what he called a cast of thousands. So there was this feeling at the time that things were not going well in business and professional ethics in Australia. And a couple of conservative business leaders, Sir Vincent Fairfax and Sir James Balderston, with Fairfax being the chairman of what was called the AMP Society, and Sir James Balderston chairing BHP, they decided something had to be done. And so they asked a man called Meredith Ryan, who was the company secretary at AMP, to travel around the world and say, well, what do we do about this? And he went on his journey and he came to a place in New York called the Trinity Centre, which was precisely established to look at these sorts of questions. And they said, well, why don't we do the same thing in Australia? And so that's how it started. It started off with a reaction in one sense against some pretty bad behaviour. But the more positive story was that people also said, actually, we're heading into a period of change, which is only going to accelerate, and which are a huge number of big questions. And where people of goodwill, you know, whether they're religious people or no religion or faith, no faith, whatever, they're really going to need some help to start thinking it through, whether it's at the level of a whole society or in individual lives. And so that's the more positive part of it, which is to say, let's create a place where people can come if they need a hand. Uh, let's create a place that can engage in discussions with the public about the things that are really important. Let's create a place where it can develop innovative approaches and uh, nowhere else in the world deals with everything from end-of-life decisions in hospitals through to the challenges facing soldiers when they go to war and everything in between sport and the arts and <laughs> mining and banking, you name it, there it is. That's a rather long answer to your simple question, but that's what it's about, where it came from. Yeah, and about that, you know, you started this um, ethics centre 30 years ago, and I was wondering what are the ethical dilemmas that Australians are dealing with today compared to when you first started it? And what are, what are some of the ethical challenges that have remained some, some, somehow the same since then? Well, in some ways, the issues remain the same. They just, the focus comes onto them. So 30 years ago, I mean, it was an early stage, I suppose, in public consciousness, but climate change was a big issue. And how you adjust as a society to the reality of that in a way that's fair to everybody. I mean, a lot of the time when... People are worried about what to do, say, for example, to do with energy trans transitions. They're not so much concerned about moving to electrification or to renewable energy. What they're worried about is, will I be left behind? Will my family still be able to afford a place to live, a good education, you know, the basic necessities of life? Or are a whole lot of people going to take advantage of this transition and have the burdens disproportionately placed on people's shoulders at one part of the country while other people you know, benefit. And so that's a big ethical question about transition. That's the same. But of course, it's come at a much sharper focus. I think 30 years ago, there were issues clearly in the relationship between 
the First Nations Indigenous people of Australia and those who colonised the country. And it's, you know, it's taken a long time. It's hundreds of years old, the question, but it's at a really sharp point now in public consciousness and public debate. And people are trying to get a real sense of what the opportunity could be for all of Australia, not just for Indigenous people, but for the whole nation to work through this and reach a just and proper settlement between all of us, you know, the kind of things that were completely overlooked in the colonial rush, not just here, it happened all around the world, but it's our turn to deal with this. There are new things. There are new things to do with artificial intelligence, robotics, and these are quite radical changes that could have a massive impact on people who've never been touched by technological innovation such as is coming our way. So now we used to think about people, you know, maybe losing their jobs in coal mines or things of that kind, but you could be working as an accountant now or a lawyer, particularly if you're young, and there'll be an expert system, an AI system that can do all of the things you do, probably quicker and cheaper. There'll be robots that can do a lot of manufacturing that's dirty and dangerous that humans won't do. Mining now is largely automated. You don't find a lot of people like you used to in the pits. Now, as a society, we haven't even thought about this. You know, what do we do when there aren't perhaps as many jobs of the kind that we used to imagine to do? There'll still be huge amounts of work. For example, lots of people will need to be involved in caring and things. Will we adjust our attitudes to that? How do we make sense of that transition so that it's fair just in the same way that an energy transition needs to be fair? I mean, it's a pretty long list, uh, Samira, that I could, I could go through. But you get a bit of a sense of how technology drives these things into the focus, as long as these long-tailed issues that confront us. Yeah, and I know that AI is kind of, you know, things like ChatGPT, they're kind of like very new things that we're trying to deal with right now, and mm. we don't necessarily know what's going to happen in the future. But um, one thing that you've said you've been discussing for years is um, climate change, and you know, right now, I think brands and corporations are now placing significance on where they stand on social causes and, you know, especially climate change, like, you know, how mm. recently BP backtracked on its commitment to lower its emissions to 40% by the end of the decade, but they still um, sort of just tell, uh, you know, tell everyday people to, you know, be better and uh, at you know reducing climate change when they could by doing these things um, does that necessarily mean that these corporations care about moral integrity and do people's demands of these companies and uh, other people in power to be more ethical mean that we'll have a more ethical future well it's, there's a whole lot of things bundled in that excellent question i mean you're right uh there are quite a few people who say all this stuff about how we as individuals and as families have to take up the burden of making adjustments in order to save the planet. And a lot of people say, yeah, okay, well, I'm prepared to do my bit, but what about the corporations that became immensely wealthy and powerful when things were going well, when the you know, the climate advice was not being taken from science? So it's been around for, for decades. And, and people are justifiably concerned when they see companies sort of taking the upside, you know, the profits and things. But when things go terribly wrong, they leave society to pick up the pieces. So to the extent that that happens and that companies don't go to the fore, then it leaves a very bad taste in the mouths of the community. And it invites eventually some kind of 
regulatory response. But the other part that comes from your question, of course, is there are some companies that seem to say all the right things, and yet often when you scratch the surface, you find that it's actually not really reflected in their day-to-day practice. So that can be, for example, greenwashing, where people make environmental claims which aren't really backed up by the facts, or um, it's called blackwashing, you know, where you sort of make an allegiance to something like the voice, but then you don't really see much evidence internally at all, or... You know, there's oh, anyway all kind of washing, as you'd know. And you've got to be pretty careful as a company that if you put your foot into that particular territory, you need to know that everybody's watching. And with the way in which, you know, not just popular mainstream media, but uh, like you guys, but also social media, you'll be uncovered if, it, if it's a load of uh, you know, rubbish and just a cover-up. So there's some there's some big questions there. So will it is it actually heading in the right direction? It all depends on us as citizens, you know, and the choices we make. Every choice we make, even if it's just a small choice, you know, it could be about the kind of eggs you buy at the supermarket. Are they free range birds or caged birds? It might seem like a little thing, but it builds up. It aggregates, and so people say, "Oh, do I have to be like?" Nelson Mandela or uh, like Gandhi, you know, huge heroic figures to change the world. And the answer is no, you don't. Tiny little decisions to fall just on the right side of these questions about what you buy, what you support, what you do, they can amount to massive change in the world. And I think one of the things we all need to realise is that we have that kind of power in our hands if we choose so to act. And we shouldn't give up on the possibility of making a better world through our own individual choices being aggregated towards that positive effect. And, you know, you've mentioned social media as well. And I was just thinking that, you know, as a young person right now, a lot of our identity and how we see the world is attached to social media uh, more so than other generations, I think. Does social media play a role in changing our ethical values? And you know, does it does it keep people accountable since it's easier to call people out on the internet? Or does do the dangers of social media hinder our progress towards a more ethical society? I think it's like electricity. You can use it for good or for bad. I, I think it's really got a, two sides, and so you've got to be very careful as a user, not to fall into some very obvious traps. The first one is, I don't think anybody should have their identity defined by their social media cohort. That's easy to say because I know some people do because they receive tremendous affirmation from the group that they belong to. But it means that who you are and what you stand for starts to be derived. It's derivative. It's not truly your own. And so in some senses, your life is less authentic than it could be then if you started to find out, well, really, who am I? What do I believe in? What do I want to attach to? That's the first pit, pitfall. The second is that there's been a strange thing that's happened in social media where groups of people who used to disagree in the past would say to each other, oh, I, I disagree with you because you've got bad reasons. And then they'd criticise their reasons. Nowadays, particularly on social media, people will say, I disagree with you, and that's because you're a bad person. And so people are very, very quick to rush to some kind of moral judgment about the character of a person who expresses a different kind of view. And so instead of social media being a place that encourages really rich and respectful debate where different ideas are actually encountered 
you listen to them and you make up your own mind, a lot of things get shut down. And what we need to think about is, could social media not only be a place that provides information that helps you make informed decisions, assuming you can check that it's, it's true, but also can we make it as much a place where it's safe to encounter challenging ideas, different opinions, rather than always being safe from them? And I just think it's lost some of its capacity and maybe your generation scenario will start to think, well, what are we missing out on here and what do we need to do to make it a tool which is predominantly for the good rather than where it sits at the moment where I think it probably does as much harm as it does good. Yeah, definitely. I think that's one of the dilemmas that young people and just people in general might face. You know, speaking of young people, this year you're planning to launch the Ethics Centre's first ever Youth Advisory Council. Mm. And, you know, what are the ethical challenges that um, the Youth Advisory Council might deal with? Well, I, I've got to be careful not to saddle them with expectations because to be respectful of young people and their opinions, the first thing you've got to do is listen to them. Uh, what's so interesting and which has led to this is that uh, younger Australians really love ethics. They love the word, they understand it, uh, they, they're not afraid of it as their parents were, where they'd say, oh, it's a bit judgy or something like that. But there's this overwhelming positive sentiment towards ethics amongst younger Australians. And so we're really keen to provide a place where that instinct for the public good can be explored. Now, I really don't know what you're likely to say are the most pressing issues. I could guess at them, but I'd rather listen and see what people come up with. And then we can start to look at a program which gives them a capacity not just to have you know the first thought that comes to mind, but to really delve deep into these things and start to shape the kind of work that we do into the future. I know that the Ethics Centre has other services, um, and one that caught my interest was Ethical, um, mm. Ethic Call. And I was wondering um, how it works and who can call and in you know what types of situations can you give people advice. Firstly, it's not so much advice, it's assistance to make their own decision. We don't want to rob people of their agency. But who calls? I can tell you it's available to every single Australian, irrespective of whether you're rich or poor, where you come from, there's no charge. It's totally free to everybody. People who've used it in the past have ranged from cabinet ministers in government through to farmers. Uh, it can be... People who are thinking about mum and dad, you know, they might have said, look, I promised I'd never put them into an aged care facility, but now I think I have to. You know, what do I do about that? So it can be a really kind of personal family issue. It can be people at work who've been asked to do something which they think is wrong and they just want to talk through with someone about their options and how they might balance the fact that they have to keep a job and preserve themselves, but also deal with their own questions of integrity. It could be a farmer who's worried about the way in which the stock on a next-door property is being treated. It might be an issue of animal cruelty, but it's not their stock, not their land. And the, the other person might have close connections with local council, so not much they're going to do about it. It's, as you can see, it's, it's a very, very obvious. You know, what do you do when you suspect, say, your best friend, their, their, their partner's cheating on them? You know, do you tell them? Uh, do they want to know? You know, it can be very personal like that. It can be personal to individuals, friends and things. It can be family issues. It can be work issues. It can be broader questions of those things. As I said, our job is not to tell people what to do. It's not in that sense. It's to give them a really 
well-structured framework by which they work towards a decision. And the best thing it does of all is it stops people saying to themselves later on, oh, if only I'd asked that question or if only I'd thought about this set of issues. So we have remarkably high levels of satisfaction with the service. It's truly extraordinary. I've never seen anything quite like it. Well, thank you so much um, for joining us today, Simon. And, you know, we've uh, this interview about ethics, you know, ethics is such a huge topic and I know we've jumped around a lot, um, but thank you so much for joining us and um, hope you have a good rest of the week. Is there anything else you'd like to tell our audience? I'd just like to reinforce that point that I made a bit earlier, Sonera, that don't ever feel overwhelmed by the complexity of the world because every small decision you make actually amounts to a bigger outcome and the choices you make today actually make the world to come. So thanks for the chance to have a yarn. Um, maybe we'll chat again in the future, which would be great. Thank you so much. And that was Dr. Simon Longstaff talking about ethics and the Ethics Centre, which is now taking in applications for their upcoming Youth Advisory Council. The applications close on Friday 31st of March, and they plan to start activities in late April. Head to their website on www.ethics.org.au slash connect slash youth advisory council to apply if you're interested and eligible. You can also head to their website to book a call through their ethical service. You're listening to Wednesday Breakfast on the 22nd of March. Stay tuned for what's next. Have you had your fourth COVID-19 vaccine dose? The Murdoch Children's Research Institute at the Royal Children's Hospital are recruiting participants aged 18 years or older to receive a randomized fourth COVID-19 vaccine dose, either Moderna bivalent or Novavax vaccine, or be part of a control group and receive no additional vaccine. You will be compensated for your time and transport and will receive your antibody test results. For more information, contact covid.booster at mcri.edu.au. The Murdoch Children's Research Institute is a 3CR supporter. Would you like to reduce your risk of dementia? The Better Brains trial aims to discover whether targeted lifestyle changes can prevent memory decline in Australian adults. Participants aged 40 to 70 with a family history of dementia are allocated to receive health coaching from an allied health professional or health education materials about dementia and its risk factors. The trial is run entirely online, so visit www.betterbrains.org.au to sign up now. Better Brains is a 3CR supporter. to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. hope our listeners are enjoying our show this morning. We just heard a, an absolutely uh, fascinating interview with Simon Longstaff from the Ethics Centre. And now we're going to be talking about uh, the anti-trans rally that took place uh, in Parliament Steps 
in Nam, Melbourne on Saturday. And just a warning to listeners that this segment discusses transphobia, police violence and the rise of the far-right fascist uh, ideology in Australia. Okay, on Saturday afternoon, members of the neo-Nazi National Socialist Network marched along Spring Street, Nam, performing the Nazi salute at an anti-transgender rights rally. The event has brought the relationship between far-right supremacists and anti-trans activists under scrutiny. The rally was organised by Kelly J. Keane, also known as Posey Parker, a British trans-exclusionary radical feminist, or TERF, who is currently visiting Australia on a speaking tour. Pro-trans groups countered the protesters, but were met with strong police resistance. In contrast, Victorian police appeared to protect the extremists, permitting them to salute, chant and hold transphobic banners. 3CR Queering the Air presenter Jacob Gamble spoke with two members of the trans community about the rally. They discussed the links between the far right and TERFs, as well as police violence against the LGBT plus community. The first speaker we hear is trans activist and convener of queer unionists in tertiary education, Amy Sargent, who was present at the rally on Saturday. We then hear from fellow activist and trans musician, Edie Phillips. Let's go to Amy's experience now. It sort of reached fever pitch yesterday on the steps of Parliament uh, here in Nam when they held their event. Kelly J. Keane was there, multiple other prominent trans-exclusionary fascists were mm. there, uh, and their friends, the Nazis, showed up too. And they both stood together behind the police line, both on the steps of parliament, together. Turfs were posing for photos in front of the Nazis. That has been documented. And the Nazis stood on the steps of parliament, giving the Nazi salute, uh, chanting Heil Hitler next to the Turfs. Mm. And they didn't say a single thing to denounce them. They let them chant and do their thing and hold their massive signs saying destroy pedo freaks pedos they're talking about trans people when they say that because we're groomers and, and stuff according to them mm. and the turfs did nothing they did nothing to denounce it uh to distance themselves from it i don't know about you but if i was protesting something and some nazis showed up and started chanting with me i would ask them to leave mm-hmm. if they didn't leave I would leave, and they didn't do that. Mm. So, TERFs and Nazis hand in hand on the steps of Parliament. Mm, Just seeing some of those images that came out with people doing the Hitler salute literally on the steps of Parliament was was chilling. I mean, Edie, how did you feel when you saw all of this unfolding online? Yeah, so... um, I unfortunately couldn't make it to the protest yesterday, but I was... um, you know, being very, like, close friends with Amy... um, I saw everything unfold, like, firsthand through live videos and also updates on Twitter. Um, it was, like, made me feel sick. Mm-hmm. It was, like, I've I've truly never seen anything, like, so hateful right on, like, my doorstep before. Mm. Um, it felt... It felt completely, it just felt like a punch in the face, really, to, like, all of my sisters and brothers and non-binary people. Mm. 
it was yeah it was horrific um and just seeing police as amy said just give them like a space the nazis to freely walk and show um like let let them show like Mm. their hate in such a um in such a protected space Mm. um was just like frightening it was so frightening because you know they were on the side with the turfs like as you said amy like Mm -hmm. they literally um had free reign to walk to do whatever they wanted to no no police force was used against them. It no, was all on, no. like, the queer community. Yep. And it wasn't a violent protest. No. Like, the police made it violent. Yeah. And then it got turned on to the queer community. Yeah. yeah. Which always happens. It's always the oppressed side that becomes, you know... Yeah, the target. The target. Yeah. That's yep. it. Um, yeah, and it was yeah just really disheartening. There's just, like... There's a lot to say on it. Um, <laughs> there, there's a lot to say, and like obviously not enough time. But yeah, I guess I guess it's just really hard to see. Um, I guess you know the police, and I'm I'm not surprised, but mm. protect them in a way, and then mm-hmm. hurt my community. Mm-hmm. Disappointed, yeah. but uh, but not surprised is sort of the sentiment I've been hearing from a lot of members of the community, and yeah. we'll definitely be touching on um, the fraught relationship between police and the queer community a bit later but first i want to get into kind of the alignment of turfs and nazis because i think a lot of people were surprised to see this happen and i think even some of the the turfs that showed up at the protest didn't realize that nazis would be there um but (laughs) you know for people who have been looking at this movement historically you know does it come as a surprise Okay, so first thing I want to address is any turf saying they were surprised about the Nazis being there. Like, oh, Mm. we didn't invite them. Look, there are people in my mentions on Twitter right now Mm. saying, I, me personally, Amy was controlling the Nazis. Oh, my (laughs) God. So, they also saying we invited them. They were there to face off with the trans people. They Mm. had nothing to do with us, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Look, I think it comes down to this. Turfism slash gender critical ideology slash transphobia in all its forms, the way it operates today in the world is as a conspiracy theory. It's akin to QAnon. It's akin to flat earthers and all this shit. The stuff they believe is not true. Mm. Think about the core tenets of turfism, of gender critical ideology, whatever the, whatever you want to call it. They think, oh, we're injecting kids the second with hormones as soon as they come out of the womb. We're taking kids away from their parents. Uh, women's sports is going under. Any of their talking points is based on disinformation, mm-hmm. things that aren't real. That's a conspiracy group. That's what they are. And these groups historically have always aligned with the far right. Kelly J. Keene has collaborated with the far right repeatedly. Mm. And they ha- we have screamed from the hills about this. Trans people have always known this. We know this because we experience it every day. Mm-hmm. We, get, we get the microaggressions every day. We get the discrimination every day. We see them working together, doing it blatantly, yeah. uh, but not in the eyes of cis people. But yesterday... They, I think they screwed up a bit in a way because that imagery is so abhorrent. Mm. That imagery, 
will not go away. All those TERFs and transphobes, whatever whatever banner they want to go under, they're all bigots who want to kill trans people. They were there facilitating a Nazi rally. If you're at a rally and someone has a Nazi flag and you don't get them to leave, you are facilitating a Nazi rally. They were behind the police line with them. So whatever, they're all Nazis now. Good job. And so that's why they screwed up because now, now the cis, whatever, who have been ignoring this for so long while we get killed, can't ignore it anymore because... Mm. That imagery of people giving the Nazis salute on the steps of parliament. I mean, if that doesn't spring you to action, what the hell will? Mm -hmm. Like, it doesn't get much worse than that, honestly. So, good job. Good job, transphobes. You've shown your true colours. And now, now big action is going to get taken. And hey, good good luck having a public-facing job anytime in the future when there's documentation of you facilitating a Nazi rally on the footsteps of Victorian Parliament. So, yeah. Mm. Edie? Yeah, like... Um, it's really... I, I think the logic um, obviously is flawed when it comes to, like, um, you know, what TERFs believe and what they think about, like, people like Amy and I, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and it really shows, especially, like, online. I mean, there's, there is so much, like, uh, like, there are so many photos, there are so many, like, actual videos from yesterday showing, like, showing them taking photos with the Nazis, um, showing them, like, not, like, as Amy said, like, there was no... Um, there was no action against them. No. They just let them, like, coexist with them on the day. It mm. was like they were together. And to to now, like, be on Twitter um, and social media saying, oh, like, no, this didn't happen, which is what's going on, which is going yeah. on right now. Yeah. Like, like, the TERFs who were there on the day, um, they are claiming that, like, oh, no, like, they, they weren't there with the Nazis. They were, They came in, like... They came in on their own, and it's like, well, you know, what they came to support sure. the Turks. Yeah. They came to support the Turks. <laughs> what they, brought them there? Exactly, the you did. You're promoting. You yeah. did mm. exactly, and it's like, well, you know, if you have like Turks, agree- uh, sorry, if you have Nazis agreeing with you and are there to support you and um, your beliefs. Surely, like, you have to think, okay, something's wrong. Yeah, something's yeah. wrong with me. Like, <laughs> that should be the come to Jesus yes. moment for yeah. TERFs. Genuinely. The, you know, uh, I mean, go- going back to the fact it is a conspiracy theory, some people are the conspiracists, mm. and a lot of them are the ones falling for it. Mm-hmm. And so for the ones who are, who are the ones falling for it, who are being tricked by the talking points and the disinformation, hopefully seeing Nazis team up with you is your moment of realisation. If you've just tuned in, we've been listening to Queering the Air host Jacob Gamble speaking with trans rights activists Amy Sargent and Edie Phillips about the anti-trans rally that took place last Saturday in Nam. As Amy has described, TERFs or trans-exclusionary radical feminists were together with far-right activists using the Nazi salute. 
Amy and Edie now share their views on the behaviour of police at the rally. Here's Amy. Yeah, I mean, I saw it happen right in front of me. Mm. So for me, speaking in a personal capacity, it wasn't alleged. I saw them pepper spraying uh, queer people. Mm. I saw police horses stomping on someone's foot and their foot getting smashed. Uh, People getting tackled, people getting kneed in the head by cops. Right. Uh, They did not apply any of that force to the Nazis. Mm. We were there to protest transphobia. Nazis are transphobic, TERFs are transphobic. We were there protesting against all of them. They could have ordered a move on to the Nazis Mm -hmm. if they thought this is no good, this this is violent. Like, I'm sorry, saying Heil Hitler constantly on the steps of parliament is a violent act. That should- is a violent act. Yeah. That is hate speech. <laughs> that that should have caused a a move on to be issued. At the least. Yeah, at the at least. The at the least. Like- at least. At least, right? Even mm. you know, because I mean I'm sure like the, the Vic Pole and the police union will say, Oh well technically we couldn't arrest them because they didn't display a swastika, a swastika's banned, Heil Hitler's not banned, so we couldn't oh, arrest them. Girl. It doesn't matter. You can you can uh, issue a move on. You can disperse yeah. the crowd. That's what they were doing to us the entire time. Yeah. They were uh, pushing us back, pushing us back, pushing us back, pushing us over, pepper spraying us. Uh, I don't know. I Look, if I was a cop there and I was being ordered to hold the line for Nazis, mm. I would have put my badge down and joined the crowd protesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I'm sorry, like, read a goddamn book. <laughs> like, we have history. Yeah. We have history. History repeating itself. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't, like, look, y'all remember the Nuremberg trials. Uh, just mm-hmm. following orders is not going to cut it. Yeah. That's what their excuse is. Like, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, that's not good enough. And there was this horrifying image of one of the police officers actually arm in arm with a Nazi member. Yeah. Shaking hands. Did, did you see that one? I saw that one. Mm. Yeah. I think that is from a couple of years ago, that uh-huh. picture. But that's that is the context. Mm. That's the context, right? And that surely, was definitely the vibe. Yeah. And yeah. if you are the Victorian police, uh, and you remember that happened, that was in the media, that was a big deal. Surely, you would want to, you know, distance yourself from those kind of optics ever again in the future. Yeah. Uh, it's it would be bad for the public to think that we are uh, ideologically aligned with Nazis in some ways. Um, but uh, yesterday did not help that cause. Yeah. Yeah. No. I. Uh, I'm speechless to think about some of the stuff that went down. It's it's scary. And probably what was almost just as bad was some of the responses from politicians in that there was, you know, rightfully so, a lot of condemnation of Nazis on the steps of Parliament House. But mm-hmm. there wasn't really any commentary about the role of police and how, you know, there's been, as you said, a lot of credible evidence coming out that People have been assaulted. I mean, Melbourne Activist Legal Service have said they're putting out a statement about how police have endangered trans people. I mean, what does this have to say about the complicity of the state in police violence against trans people? I have to say, when when I was there witnessing all of this yesterday, one, I was trying to film it all, because that's kind of one of our most powerful weapons, Mm. uh, is to document... Um, what happens? Because as we saw, they try to deny it. The Tufts try to deny it. They try, every, you know, from the establishment press to the police union to all of those groups seek to reframe the narrative, seek to distance the idea that Tufts have anything to do with it. They want to just talk about Nazis. They don't want to talk about. I mean, look, 
uh, I think for most, I don't mean liberal the party, I mean like small L liberal politicians, mm. as in major parties, Labour, Liberal, whatever, mm-hmm. for small L liberals and conservatives for sure, criticising the cops is something you can only do in their minds in a very extreme circumstance. Like if you have um, a George Floyd type scenario where there's a video out and it's horrendous and Mm. there's just no way any sane person could justify it. Um, There's just so much happening yesterday. There are videos everywhere of all the stuff that went down. I mean, no one, no one died, thank God, but Mm. um, it's, reframing that narrative is important to maintaining the oppressive structures that see trans people killed. So, mm. And not only trans as well, you know, this Definitely. affects just about every All other minority yeah. group too, yes. whether it's people of colour, totally. you know, um, ex-detainees, like, yeah, it, it goes system-wide. I think it, it shows that we do need to be arm-in-arm and allies in our struggles. I mean, we've only got a few minutes left um, to speak with you two lovely ladies, but <laughs> let's finish maybe on a glimmer of hope. Um, Edie, what message of strength would you have for the trans community here in Melbourne? Honestly, I know that there's like so much going on, so much hatred and so much like vilification, especially in like the media and like from what we're seeing like in the streets. But I think the best thing to remind ourselves of is how much support we have within our community and how much love and how much strength there is. And, like, there's nothing that can break that. And historically, there hasn't been anything that has broken that. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, as small as these, like, minority groups are, they are loud. Um, They are minority groups as in these, you know, hateful TERFs and Nazis. They're loud, um, but, like, we're always louder. Mm-hmm. Um, like, we we will always come on top. We always have. And so we just need to remind ourselves on that and just, like, get through the day. Like, <laughs> like yeah, just be there. Be there for your, like for the trans people in your life, the queer people in your life. Um, Mm. mm -hmm. Yeah, because there's so much love there amongst all of this. And that was trans rights activists Amy Sargent and Edie Phillips talking about the anti-trans rally in Nam on Saturday in which TERFs and far-rightists using the Nazi salute protested side by side. After the protest, anti-trans rallyists denied association with the neo-Nazi group. Victorian Liberal Opposition Leader John Pesuto decried the event and has called for the expulsion of Victorian MP Moira Deeming, who attended the rally and was photographed smiling with lead spokesman person Kelly Jane Keen Kelly J. Keane. Legislation will be introduced to ban the display of the Nazi salute following the protest. And Melbourne Activist Legal Support has issued a statement of concern regarding the police behaviour at the event. On a more positive note, Kelly Jane J. Keane was met with a booing crowd when she appeared at an anti-trans rally in Hobart yesterday. And if this segment has raised issues for you, please seek support at Lifeline 131114 or contact Q Life 
on 1800 184 527. Their helpline is available 3pm to midnight daily and you can also visit their website qlife.org.au. Big thanks to Jacob for sharing this segment with us and you can catch Queering the Air every Sunday at 3pm on 3CR. North Preston Life Saving Club is a new creative space, gallery and studios run for and by queer artists with disability. They're currently taking applications for studios and membership with priority given to disabled, queer and BIPOC communities. They'll be running workshops, holding community events and showcasing works by local and interstate artists. The North Preston Life Saving Club crew are seeking assistance in getting up and running and they need your help to get three-phase power to run equipment, including a kiln. To find out more and to show your support for independent creatives, please visit their Facebook page, North Preston Life Saving Club. North Preston Life Saving Club is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast and we'll be bringing you into a song. This is called Why Do All the Bad Guys Taste So Good by Mary Coughlin. Why do all the bad guys taste so good? What is it about me makes me want a man I shouldn't? Maybe it's the smell of danger makes me crave a wicked angel who will run me through. Why do all the wicked things taste sweet? Something about them makes me feel I'm grown old. The bad in me just loves the center. The girl in me was always immature. There ain't no cure. Why do all the good things pass me by? Never realized I've screwed up all 
That was Why Do All the Bad Guys Taste So Good by Mary Coughlin. So yeah, now we'll be moving to our next part of our show. So on Monday, federal courts in Melbourne heard the challenges to the long delays that plague the FOI request, which stands for Freedom of Information, being reviewed by the Australian Information Commissioner. This case was brought by Transparency Warrior and former independent senator Rex Patrick, who currently has over 20 contested FOI applications still awaiting awaiting review. And I'll be speaking to him about the court hearing and how the FOI works and its implication. This is Rex Patrick. Hi, Rex. Uh, good morning. Good morning. Good morning to your listeners as well. Yes. <laughs> so um, before we move into what was discussed during the court hearing. Could you tell us a bit of what is the FOI and how it works? Yeah, every um, Australian, or sorry, I'd like to start off by saying the Australian government, um, uh, everything that it does is is paid for by Australian citizens and indeed is uh, for public purpose. And as a result, any documents that the government produce effectively belong to all Australians. And under freedom of information laws at the federal level, but mm-hmm. there are also sort of state regimes as well, under the federal law, there is a legally enforceable right for every Australian to access the documents that government have. Now, of course, there are some documents they can't have, and mm-hmm. they are called exempt documents. That might be documents that relate to certain elements of what the Defence Department does, or certain things that the uh, police force, the federal police force, are doing. Um, But in principle, you're allowed to have access to uh, information simply by making an FOI request. When you do that, what happens is someone inside the department to whom you are seeking the documents from uh, will look at the documents that you've requested and they'll make sure that there's nothing in there that uh, is, is... not in the public interest release or uh, is covered by uh, particular exemptions, they will make a decision and they will hand you the decision and they may hand you all of the documents, some of the documents or none of the documents. Mm. Now, of course, you have an appeal right. You can say, I actually think that decision is wrong. Uh, And that's when you can go to the Information Commissioner and the Information Commissioner is independent of the uh, agency and in fact is an independent statutory officer and they look at uh, the documents and the decision from an independent perspective and they can overturn those decisions. Uh, they can uh, say, look, these exemptions are not properly made out, uh, they shouldn't have been withheld from uh, the, the applicant and um, the, you know, that, that's our, our normal system and in fact you can, you can go on and eventually appeal to even the courts if... Uh, if you think the agency or the or the information commission is wrong. Hmm. The problem we have in Australia is that once an FOI application is made, there are generally time limits around how, um, how long the department have to answer. Hmm. The default time limit is 30 days. But after you get it into the information commission, there is no statutory time frame. She, she's, there's no command from the parliament as to how long she should take to carry out uh, what are called FOI reviews, and the problem is, she still has reviews going back for, to, from uh, requests made in 2018, mm. 2019, 
So that's four or five years ago. Yeah. And information um, has a temporal value. The, you know, the, you, the whole point of the Act is, is uh, to be able to get access to information so that you can contribute to a debate uh, or a discussion or a decision or laws that are being proposed. If you get the documents back you know, three, four or five years later, <laughs> the decisions have well gone and the policies have well been decided and the law has been passed. And it means that the documents are no longer useful for the purpose the Act intended everyone to be able to get access to documents uh, to. And, and um, uh, yeah, they effectively become historical documents. Mm, yeah, definitely. And um, yeah, is considering how a lot of the reviews have been waiting for a few years, obviously by now it might not be useful anymore. Uh, but... When, so in the court that you went on Monday, did what did you exactly challenge regarding the delayed FOIs? Was it more of regarding the time or was it regarding more of the things that you wanted reviewing of? No, this is a more general mm-hmm. um, application to the federal court. Yep. Uh, under uh, other laws, um, the uh, a, a citizen can, if, if someone's taking too long to make a decision, if they're taking an unreasonable amount of time, you can you can go to a court and ask them to order them to actually hurry up. And that's effectively what I did. I, I asked uh, for the 20 applications that I had on, on foot with the Information Commissioner, um, some of them going back three years. Um, uh, I asked the court to order... Uh, that the information commissioner answer uh, the reviews. Now, it's all pretty cha- uh, sort of technical as to whether or not and when the the information commissioner has a duty to uh, to actually uh, provide a decision. Mm. It's also uh, a question of what is unreasonable, and you know I think everyone, and including the judge said that if, if they went and asked someone on a tram on Swanson Street if they thought that three years to review a freedom of information application was reasonable, every single person would say no. But then you have to build that into the context of uh, there is just an overwhelming number of information commissioner reviews that are, uh, in, that are, that are underway. Uh, there are thousands of them. And... The, the information commissioner hasn't got the people. They haven't had an increase in budget from the federal government since 2016. Yet they've had a rapid rise in the number of people exercising their rights and asking for information. And so the question is, you know, when you're considering whether something is reasonable, do you have to take into account the lack of resources? Because yeah, the the reality is this whole problem stems not from the information commissioner not wanting to do her job, but mm. because the government has simply refused to fund the organisation properly. Because governments love to release information at a time and in a form that suits them, and FOI disrupts that. FOI, any citizen can go and say, I want to know. Uh, a little bit about the national ID card that's being proposed. Uh, I want to know about uh, all of the details about stage three tax cuts. I want to know about how the government intends to uh, keep uh, keep the nuclear reactors safe on our eight uh, uh, 
nuclear submarines that we're purchasing. You can ask the government all of those questions and they may feel a little bit uncomfortable about releasing that information now. And so they, they benefit from having an organisation that's just overwhelmed because they know that if they, if they refuse access to information, they can, it'll just go to the Information Commissioner and be, it, will, it will be caught up there for years. So part of the motivation behind a court case is to find out from the court what is reasonable, and that can be pressed back to the Parliament to say, you've got to change something. Uh, but also, in, in, in my case, it would get my answers a lot quicker, uh, and then other people can make an application to the court relying on the on the case that has been heard over the last two days in Melbourne. So there's great public benefit in this particular case, and it was underwritten by... Uh, the uh, the Grata Fund and the Australian Institute. So that if if it turns out that the judge rules against me, uh, normally what happens if you don't win a court case, you get what's called an adverse cost order. And we know that the government has spent uh, $700,000 on this case. And you can imagine someone like me, that's a huge amount of money. Yeah. Um, so, so we've got some protections in place from the court as to that, about how much... The, uh, the the adverse cost order can be, and, and that's set at $80,000. And we've got uh, Grata Fund and the Australia Institute have agreed uh, to indemnify me to make sure that I don't personally wear the cost for this public interest case that was brought before the court. Mm. So this advocacy, um fortunately for you, you won't have to bear the, uh, the entire cost, but then for other people... That, that may have to be something that they entirely depend on. Is that correct? That's correct. But other people, if they follow me and make applications to the court and say, I want my matters dealt with within a reasonable time frame, won't have to carry out the legal arguments. They can just look at the decision mm. that uh, gets made in my case and they can quote that decision back to the court. And what courts love to do is, is have consistency in the application of the law. So once a court has decided uh, on, a, on a matter as to what is reasonable, then uh, generally um, the, the court will try and maintain that position for anyone else who, who makes an application. Look, it shouldn't be that Australians have to make applications to press um, the, the government to perform a duty which is commanded by the Parliament. The Parliament says we have access to this information and the Parliament says that we have access to this information in a manner that is prompt. And right now the government is strangling uh, the organisation that allows you to get access to the information in a prompt manner. Mm, I see. And then can I ask, what were some of your outstanding FYIs that you have been awaiting review on? Well, uh, I've got a number of different areas and they're all related to public interest. So, mm -hmm. for example, uh, the discussion, I want details of the discussions that are taking place in relation to oil and gas resources between Timor-Leste uh, and Australia. Uh, I'm after information about uh, the project status of some, some fairly major projects. So, for example, Snowy 2.0, I've had an application in for the last couple of years to try and get access to things like its schedule uh, and other details around the program. Of course, 
in the time that I've been waiting, uh, and you know, part of the reason I, I sought access to the information was because I suspected something was wrong. Uh, and indeed, now we find out that that program is in a world of hurt. The uh, CEO has now been uh, replaced, uh, and it, you know, there's great uncertainty about when that project will now be finished. Mm. Um, had I had that information uh, somewhat earlier, I could have alerted the public uh, to to the uh, delays, and indeed, uh, that would have put political pressure on the government to act much sooner, and that would have saved potentially uh, a lot of money for Australian taxpayers. So that's the sort of thing uh, you can do with these FOIs. Mm. So you know, Timor Leste, COVID modelling, uh, the, the, there's uh, uh, a whole range of different sort of public interest fields. Uh, you know, I tend to make, uh, my saying is an FOI a day stops democracy decay. And you know, mm. I tend to make several FOIs a week in all sorts of different areas because it allows us to see inside, to open up the bonnet and look inside and see what government's doing, remembering that they, they're doing this on your money and for, for your good. And so we ought to be able to look inside and see exactly what is going on. Mm, I see. Well, what Patrick, uh, sorry, Rex, um, we only have one more question left we could ask from you, unfortunately. Um, but what is expected to happen now after this? What What are the main answers you're waiting for? Um, even though you have argued about regarding the what is deemed unreasonable uh, unreasonable delays, but um, how long do you think you can expect an answer regarding that? Well, I'm in I'm in the hands of the court, but what I can say is. Justice Wilhelm um, was was very alert, very intent, had clearly done his homework and was asking all of the right questions uh, on both sides of the argument. So uh, let's, uh, you know, I, I've just got to wait and see now. The matter's adjourned, the judgment is reserved and at some time in the near future, we'll get an answer from the court. Mm, I see. All right. So thank you so much, uh, Rex, for your time. You're and- most welcome. Thank you. And hopefully you get to get your answers really soon. Yeah, well, hopefully uh, it's a really important for the general yeah. public. This, this case was brought on to, for, for public interest. That's true. That's true. All right. Thank you so much, Rex. Take care. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. That was Transparency Warrior and former independent senator Rex Patrick speaking on the challenge towards long delays of FOI. Uh, which stands for Freedom of Information, uh, requests that were being reviewed by the Australian Information Commissioner and also looking at how FOI works. So yeah, uh, we'll be taking a bit of a short break and yeah, and after that, we'll be listening to Claudia. And now this song that I'll be bringing you is called Walaya. This is by Ripple Effect Band.
And that was Walaya by Ripple Effect Band. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast with Grace, Sonera and Claudia, myself. And next up, we have another very experienced and distinguished guest with us, Joseph Camilleri, the Emeritus Professor at La Trobe University and founding director of the La Trobe Centre for Dialogue. Professor Camilleri is one of Australia's leading international relations scholars with over 30 years' experience in regional and global governance, political economy, religion, culture and security policy. We spoke to Professor Camilleri back in 2021 when he launched a forum called Conversation at the Crossroads, an opportunity for everyday citizens to lead their own discussions about the most pressing issues of our time. He's back with us this morning to tell us how those conversations are going and give us the rundown for voice, treaty and truth-telling, what, when, how, a very timely conversation forum taking place in Nam today. Good morning, Professor Camilleri. Uh, good morning. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks so much for joining us this morning on a, a busy day for you. My pleasure. And before we get into uh, the event taking place today, uh, just wanted to recap since we spoke to you about the launch of Conversation at the Crossroads. Uh, that began about two and a half years ago. Can you tell us how those forums are taking place and the type of ideas and questions you're exploring there? Well, as you would uh, expect, uh, we have touched on many of the very big issues uh, that uh, face uh, Australia as a country, uh, but also other parts of the world, uh, because we are trying to... Uh, if you like, nurture a conversation that's not just Australian-based, uh, but uh, increasingly uh, international. Uh, most issues now have an international dimension. And so it is with uh, discussions we've had and events we have held uh, on climate change, on issues of peace and war, uh, on great power relations, uh, and, in fact, uh, on uh, the state of democracy in this country and in other countries, uh, on the way uh, citizens are responding or not responding to the big issues of our time, uh, and uh, the rise of political extremism. Uh, we know it is happening in this country. Of course, it is happening in many others. Uh, these are just some of the issues. But... Uh, education, uh, of course, the question of race. In our, in our case, uh, Australia, uh, the very important question of relations between Indigenous and non-Indigenous or settler uh, society. And uh, that's, uh, as you can see, a very, very big menu to be able to digest it. So we've done it through a number of different kinds of events small events and larger ones. Uh, during the COVID period, much of it has been online. Uh, we are trying to do a bit more in person now while retaining the online uh, uh, format, especially when we are uh, doing events, uh, having conversations that are uh, across uh, 
state borders that are national and, of course, international. Uh, so, um, the, apart from holding events of various kinds, in person, online, uh, small and large structured, uh, not, uh, not so structured, uh, apart from holding events as such, we have encouraged the formation of small conversation groups, anything from four or five up to 10 or 12 people, uh, we, who can meet around a particular set of issues uh, and discuss them at some length over many months, perhaps longer. Uh, and they can do this, of course, either in person and online on a wide range of topics. So uh, we've got this off the ground. There's a lot of work to be done on that. We've barely scratched the surface, but uh, we are uh, reasonably ambitious and hope to be able to do more, including, of course, through social media. And today, of course, you're launching your first lunchtime discussion uh, in West Melbourne to discuss the voice to parliament. Uh, Other than climate change, this feels like a, you know, the, the most uh, important thing on our national agenda. Uh, where and when is this event taking place? Who can come along? And what are the big questions that will be unpacked? Well, uh, it's happening uh, later today. It's, a lunch, it's part of a lunchtime series, which we've called Voices, and we'll be holding uh, 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 this kind of event, uh, let's say, every six weeks for the next several months. And uh, it, it is to be held uh, today at uh, the City of Melbourne uh, Bowls Club, uh, which is a very lovely venue, uh, an indoor venue, but right in the middle of uh, Flagstaff Garden. So um, uh, we have a number coming in person and a number joining us online. Uh, people can still join us in person. Uh, there is a fee attached and there are refreshments available uh, as well as, of course, uh, uh, having the opportunity to engage uh, uh, with our guests. Uh, so the issue, well, it's the obvious one. What does the voice to parliament entail? Is this a substantial, significant step on the road to justice for our First Nations? Or, as some would say, is it a cosmetic exercise? Uh, we may go through the referendum, it may get up, uh, but will there be much change two or three or four years down the track? Uh, so that's the big question that I think is exercising many people. What's at stake? Um, is there a solid commitment on the part of government and parliament to really move ahead in a way that gives our First Nations, uh, both separately and collectively, a, a real voice on all the key issues uh, that affect them directly and affect this country, uh, because the two, of course, at the end of the day, are inseparable. So these are the issues we're trying to, uh, if you like, explore and hopefully get a deeper understanding uh, of the options available uh, to concerned, informed, thoughtful citizens as the best way uh, to deliver long overdue justice uh, to the indigenous uh, communities of uh, this land. 
Thank you. And you have two key speakers coming along today. Marcus Stewart, the elected co-chair of the First Peoples Assembly of Victoria and a member of the First Nations Referendum Working Group. And Waka Waka, Woolly Woolly traditional owner from central Queensland, Shinara Gorengarang. She is the co-founder and national convener of the Foundation for Indian Indigenous Recovery Australia and the National Co-Convener of the Australian Greens First Nations Network. Will these two speakers be working uh, with the participants today and talking through issues? Uh, How will they uh, present and how will their individual positions influence the discussions that unfold? Well, uh, the uh, the format is very simple. I'll invite, uh, I'll be moderating the event, and uh, I'll invite I- each of them to address first, to address us first for about ten minutes or so, uh, and then I'll engage them in conversation for about another little while, ten minutes, fifteen minutes, and then we'll open it to questions and comments, and uh, to the two guests and their responses. Uh, so it's meant to be a relatively, uh, uh, how can I put it? it? We'll try and make it uh, useful, engaging, but at the, tam- at the same time contain it in terms of time, especially having in mind people who have uh, other work or other commitments in, in the city and can only take so long. That's why we're having it uh, at a lunchtime uh, 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 we have made a lunchtime arrangement. So, but, but there will be plenty of opportunity for people to ask questions and for um, our two guests to give um, um, some uh, answers to the question. Uh, uh, as to what positions they come from, well, uh, I, I can't speak for either of them and it'll be interesting to see how they, uh, what they have to say. But um, uh, we know that... Uh, in one case, uh, we have someone who's who's on the referendum working group, and obviously is working very strongly, very uh, hard, and uh, passionately uh, in favour of getting the referendum up and running and successful. And someone else who has been very involved uh, uh, for a long time uh, in uh, issues of public policy, especially as they affect. Uh, uh, indigenous peoples. So uh, that's all I can tell you. Uh, what they will pres- what they will have to say, uh, we'll have to be there to hear that. I can't speak for them. Absolutely. Um, we don't have lots of time, but I did want to ask you uh, one question that you posed in the introduction to this event that I was reading online. You said voice first versus treaty first. Is the conflict real or artificial? Can you explain what you mean by that? Well, as you know, we've had a bit of a debate. Uh, we, we are having a bit of a debate. And there are those, uh, I mean, we all heard the name Lydia Thorpe, uh, who uh, are concerned uh, that uh, uh, the voice to parliament uh, is um, may... Uh, be at, if not at the expense of the treaty, uh, but the sidelining of the of the treaty, uh, and um, who question whether this uh, 
this idea of the sequence uh, is uh, the right way to go. So that that is a question. Um, uh, now, the, in the case of Victoria, we have had, uh, if you'd like, an experiment in voice and then treaty, which is now uh, getting underway, uh, being negotiated. Now, the question is, uh, I suppose what some people are asking is, does the present government have a strong commitment to negotiating a treaty, uh, assuming the voice to parliament is successful uh, at the referendum? And um, that's um, it's a legitimate question to ask. And um, the question then arises, process and time. Uh, will this take forever? Is this something which will be done in the relatively near future? How will it be done? Who will engage in negotiations, etc., etc.? So these are very important questions, and uh, we need to explore them in some detail, not just at this event today, uh, but in the weeks and months to come. And uh, speaking of weeks and months to come... Um what are the plans for future discussions on this topic and others? Well, we have two other, uh, apart from uh, the small conversation groups that I've mentioned, some of which, uh, one of which in particular, is dealing with Indigenous issues. Apart from that, um, we have... Uh, Another series called Big Ideas in the Pub. We've already had one of these uh, with more to come during the course of the year. And I'm sure that uh, 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 the last one dealt with the issue of democracy and whether we have uh, a deficit, a democracy deficit in this country, as in some others, and uh, how might we respond to that. Uh, I'm sure that uh, the issue of uh, the referendum and the whole, the larger question of uh, justice for our First Nations will, will also feature at some point in that series as well. And uh, we have other, other plans for some international conversations on the great issues which uh, uh, currently challenge us uh, in a very, very urgent way, namely the two existential threats of our time, uh, which are the possibility of uh, a great power conflict that might even involve the use of nuclear weapons on the one hand, and uh, climate change and related questions of biodiversity lost and so on. So we will not ignore those questions, of course, as we proceed uh, uh, in the month ahead. Thank you so much for talking to us this morning. I will uh, put all the details of how our listeners can uh, find out about your events on our show notes. But we really appreciate you talking about uh, today's event and uh, would encourage our listeners to get along to that, that one today. Uh, Voice Treaty Truth-Telling, What, When, How, Online and In Person. Today, Wednesday, 22nd of March, kicking off at 12.30 uh, till 2pm at the City of Melbourne Bowls Club, Flagstaff Gardens, uh, Dudley Street, West Melbourne. And tickets are priced between $10 and $22, uh, depending on uh, whether you're concession or whether you're going online or in person. Uh, that's uh, 
it for now. So thank you very much, Professor Camilleri, Emeritus Professor at La Trobe University and founder of Conversation at the Crosswords. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Well, that's it for our show today. Yeah. It's been very political, as Grace said, but I feel like we've, uh, other than climate, I think we've unpicked quite a lot of big big topics today. Mm. And, um, I think they all really related in a lot of ways because mm. freedom of information and giving a voice. And, you know, when giving a voice, that's also really looking at ethics. What can we say and what we shouldn't say? I think, yeah, mm. that's... And also, of course, um, with the... Uh, that the the anti trans rally that happened as well. It's you know about voices. I mean, yeah, it definitely, it's about voices. But you know, your opinions are not exactly what we want. But mm. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, that's another ethical, I suppose, issue for us to consider whether all voices are uh, as welcome. Mm. Yes. Maybe a topic for another show. Mm. Uh, so uh, thank you to all our listeners and mm. thanks to our guests. Yep. Thank you. Uh, we'll see you all next week. See you guys next week. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard.